long verses at the end of chapter 5. In fact, not many words there, but they are powerful. They really have some very important uh, information for life. So um, I hope you will just put up with me as we continue to take a little bit of time and look at these verses as I've said, I always love these verses because they're easy to memorize. You know, if anyone says, memorize the word, oh, yeah, rejoice evermore. You know, that's a, that's a great one, isn't it? And, yeah, I, I love those. And pray without ceasing. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, and, in fact, a verse we'll look at today, quench not the spirit. That's a, that's a good verse, a powerful verse, and an important one for life. Uh, just a lot of, again, practical information for life. We're going to dismiss young people. The Umstead's going to be working with them. You're welcome to head on out, young people, to the upper room uh, if you wish. It's not a requirement, but uh, you can go ahead and head out those who are interested in that. First Thessalonians chapter 5, you are there. And we are going to uh, begin actually in verse 19, since we took uh, three weeks to look at verses 16, 17, and 18. Uh, and we are not, uh, we're going to actually get like four verses done today. I hope you'll be, you're impressed with that. So uh, <laughs> I really thought I was going to finish a chapter, but I don't know. I just keep getting hung up on the wonderful truth that God has for us. So. Uh, follow along. I'll start reading in verse 19. God says, Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, Pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please open our eyes to behold the great truth, the wondrous truth out of your law today. Thank you for giving us this book. Thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice that we might have life and have a reason to live, and then for all the wonderful gifts you give us to challenge us and to stir us to live life for the glory of God. And help us this morning as we look at this truth to be uh, helped from the Word of God and different because of what we see written in your Word. And I will thank you for how you'll give us a wonderful time in your Word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the storms that came by a few weeks ago, there was a tree beside our neighbor's driveway that came down due to the powerful winds. They didn't even know it during the storm, but uh, one of those, I think it's a Bradford pear. You know those Bradford's pears? Every time there's a windstorm, at least you see at least a few of them that, that split or whatever. Well, they came, it came down, uh, came down and hit two driveways, or took really two driveways out. Uh, one of our neighbors, their car was damaged a little bit. The other one... Uh, his car wasn't damaged, but the tree limbs were on it. Now, um, I don't have a chainsaw to offer, but I did offer to let him use uh, my reciprocating saw if he wanted to, uh, so he could get some of those things removed uh, that were sitting on his truck. Now, he didn't avail himself of that, and that's fine. He was able to get the tools needed, actually, the next day to get the work done. But I want you to imagine for a moment that he was out in the yard with a kitchen knife. 
and he was uh, sawing on some dinky little limb, you know, trying to get it clear, cleared off and covering the, get the limbs off the part of his car in the driveway. And let's imagine that he's with this kitchen knife, and I come to him while he's sawing away, and I say, would you like to use my reciprocating saw to work on this tree? And if all he had was a kitchen knife, you would consider him a fool. And he's not, mind you, all right? You would consider him a fool, would you not? To turn down the offer of a power tool that could help him get the tree down and get things removed as he needs to. And the reason why is he's not going to get the work done with a kitchen knife. Well, I mean, you know, he maybe is in great physical condition. I'm, I'm not questioning that. And he might have, you know, great skill and ability in sharpening kitchen knives. But the quite, quite frankly, he's not going to be able to get the job done like it needs to be done. He's just not going to be able to get it cleared without having the proper tools. Now, with that in mind, I, I draw your attention to our passage today because God, at the end of this chapter, talks about tools he has given us to help us get the job done, the job of living for God in a godless world. And we do indeed live in a godless world, and we are indeed commanded by God to live a life that is pleasing to Lord Jesus Christ. And quite honestly, living life for the glory of God and living life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, our Father, the way it's done, uh, or it's actually an impossible thing in our own strength. We would be, in a sense, like people out with a kitchen knife trying to cut down a tree that has fallen in our driveway. It's an impossible thing. It's not going to happen unless we have help. And what is so helpful, I find, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is God talks about various ways in which and things he has given, if you will, power tools that help us to remove the clutter that has come in our lives that keep us from being pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, this morning, um, will you look at these tools God has given us and will you think about what God has said about those tools this morning? And by his grace, may we find his help, find his power tools working for us rather than trying to do it in our own strength. I actually entitled the message, God's Work In and Through You. Because these last verses all talk about God's work in and through your life. What God wants to do in you, what God wants to do through you. But you must be willing. In fact, the first statement tells us that very fact when we jump right in and re read the four words, quench not the Spirit. In fact, if we wanted to kind of outline the entire passage, we would have the work of the Holy Spirit, we have the work of the Spirit. Then we have in verse 20 and ver 21 and 22, the work of the Scriptures. In verse 23, we have the work of sanctification. And then he ends up the chapter with the work of saints. So if you wanted an outline for the rest of the chapter, though I'm not going to get to all four points, that would be a good way to describe what is talked about in these last verses. But let's begin by looking at the work of the Spirit. Now, it's not a lot, not a lot of words, but there is a lot being said here. And I want to share three things about the Spirit that are either assumed or they're commanded. So think about this. First truth is, God's Spirit is within every believer. 
Now, I, I know that's not all that profound to most of you. In fact, that wouldn't be a surprise probably to any of you, but it's an important truth that's assumed you understand when God says, quench not the spirit. He assumes that every Christian, every believer, everyone who's part of the family of God, because that's who he's talking to in this passage, knows and understands, I have the spirit of God dwelling within me. Now, the truth of the matter is, there are some religious groups that don't understand that. In fact, some teach about having some baptism of the Spirit after you're saved, whereby the Holy Spirit comes and begins to indwell your, your heart and life. But do you know that the Bible is very clear about the fact that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not part of His family? In Romans chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And then he concludes verse 9 by saying this, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Look, the Bible is very clear about the fact that when someone accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell within. What he is going to command us in this passage, what he's going to instruct us in verse 19 about, assumes the fact that you know God's Spirit is already there and already dwells within. And God tells us in Romans chapter 8, if you don't have a spirit, you're none of his. The truth is, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit comes to dwell within. In fact, just take a moment and look, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 1. Not too far back, just a few books back. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told the truth that there is not some second endowment of the spirit that a Christian needs to receive or have happen in order to have the spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 13, he says, In whom ye also trusted, talking about Jesus Christ, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, God says ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And he goes on in verse 14 to say that the Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. If we want to understand properly what God teaches about His Holy Spirit in His Word, we've got to understand that the Holy Spirit comes upon a person or, or indwells a person from the very moment they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ until the redemption of the purchased possession. You know, that means God's Holy Spirit dwells with every believer from the day they receive Jesus Christ as Savior until the day Jesus comes again, or until they go to be with Him, whatever may be the case. What a wonderful truth. God has given us His Holy Spirit to dwell within. Now, that's not the focus of verse, nine, uh, verse 19, but that is assumed that you understand, and it's important for people to understand it because some sadly teach wrong things about the Spirit of God. In fact, some misunderstand the Spirit of God's ministry in life uh, in many ways. The second truth I want you to know about the Spirit is this. God's Spirit is working. Now, I know another profound truth. I am really going to impress you with profound truths today. God's Spirit is within, and then God's Spirit is working. That's assumed, and it's actually stated. He says, quench not the Spirit. Look, God's Spirit within you is not just there to kind of take up space. Uh, God's Spirit dwelling within was not given so that you could say, Ooh, I have God dwelling within. Although that is a wonderful truth to be able to admit. God's Holy Spirit within was not given so that we could think we're more special than other people because 
when we accept Christ, he's given us his spirit. No, that isn't the reason the spirit of God was given. The Bible is clear. We don't even have time this morning to give you all the things that God's word tells us that the spirit of God does in the life of those he comes to indwell. I mean, Jesus Christ himself said, hey, look, if I go away, it's a good thing. In John chapter 14 and 15 and 16, when he was given final instructions to his disciples, he said, you know, one of the things that would be as good is that I'm going away. And the disciples were obviously incredulous. Well, what good could it be if Jesus would go away? And he said, it's a good thing if I go away, because if I go away, I'll send the Comforter. And the Comforter is the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God does bring comfort to his children. God's Spirit is indeed working. And the Bible tells us that over and over and over again, it is assumed that you know God's Spirit is working in you. And we're actually told that very fact. The picture is given of a fire. Quench not the Spirit. Like a a fire burning within, God's Spirit is a force that is designed to work in and through your life to make you what God wants you to be. I I ask myself the question, well, well, what, what work of the Spirit aren't we to quench? Do you know that some people who study these passages out tell us they know definitively what it is? We're not told, but they argue, at least some do, that, uh, that they believe, according to the verse, uh, verse 20, that what is being talked about here are the gifts of the Spirit, that you're not to quench the gifts of the Spirit that he gives. Well, I, I don't have any problem if someone wants to say that that would be uh, one of the things, certainly, that the Spirit of God is doing. He works within, and he does give gifts to people. Ephesians 4 talks about gifts of the Spirit. It talks about the pastor and, and, and teacher. It talks about the evangelist. It talks about the apostle. Uh, it talks about a number of different people and says God gave them to the church and he gave gifts, and, one, and those are some of the gifts listed. We have looked and we've mentioned as we've been talking about divine healing, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 that talk about gifts the Holy Spirit of God gives. And some argue that verse 20 is talking about one of those gifts, despise not prophesying. And so the gifts of the Spirit that he's given, they say, uh, we are not to quench. Well, I, hey, I, I think that's good preaching. And I think that would be fine. It's possible that that is what he was talking about. Uh, by the way, others point to the next verse, and they say that what it's talking about is the Spirit of God works in the heart of believers through the Word of God, because the Word of God is being dealt with in the next few verses, and we're not to quench that work the Spirit does through the Word of God. Well, I think that's also valuable. Don't you? I mean, the Spirit of God does take the Word of God and helps us to understand the truth of God. In fact, Jesus Christ said one of the reasons He'll come is not just to be a comforter, but one of the other reasons the Spirit of God is going to come is to open our minds and our eyes to the truth of the Word of God. So God's Spirit does give us understanding of the Word of God so that we can grow and we can know what we ought to do. And certainly, we shouldn't quench that work of the Spirit. But quite honestly, the Spirit of God works in a number of different ways. And the Bible gives us a multitude of ways. And again, we, we don't even have time. I wouldn't even get through the first verse. That would be bad because I told you I was going to get through four. I wouldn't even get through the first verse if we talked about all the various ministries and works of the Spirit of God. But this I do know that if you're a Christian, God's Spirit is not only dwelling within, but God's Spirit is working in your heart and life. Now the question 
is in this passage. Do you even know it? Isn't that fair to say? If he says, quench not the Spirit, then we might be able to say, well, I know the Spirit of God, then it's obviously working. But the question is, do you even know it? Are you aware that God's Spirit is working in your heart and life? How can you quench something if you don't even know it's happening? Am I, am I right? So God tells us that God's Spirit is working within us. By the way, I, I think another way, thing we could argue, although we, we, again, aren't told in the text, God says to walk in the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Walking in the Spirit indicates and gives us a picture that God's Spirit is directing. Have you been aware of his leadership? Has he been directing you? Do you even know that? If not, then there really is something to be concerned about today because God says, quench not the Spirit, and you can't even obey it if you don't understand the Spirit dwells within and the Spirit is working on a regular basis in my heart and life. It really does start there, and it's foundational understanding this verse. God used a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards to bring a revival to New England uh, in the 1700s, a, a great working of God uh, during that time in history. Uh, someone wrote about it, and <clears throat> he shared a number of truths about Edwards. And I'm not, I, I, man, I wouldn't even be able to read the whole thing. But he shared this. He said, early in his pastoral career, career, Edwards had to grapple with what it would mean for a congregation to be revived. His church was solidly orthodox. It had experienced several harvests of conversions uh, to Jesus Christ when Edward's grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, pastored the church. But in the 1730s, the church's orthodoxy, their practices, were just notional. That's what the Puritans called it. And that's how he described it as he was saying it. And you know what that meant? It meant that they could rattle off what they called the catechism. They, they knew, like, the Westminster Confession. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever heard about that before? They could, they could quote those things. If you were to say, you know, what, what does the Bible say about this? They could give you the catechism. They could give you maybe even the point. They knew their doctrine. They knew their truths. The Puritans had a good grasp of Bible truth. But you know what Edward started to realize? is just having a grasp of Bible truth does no good unless God's Spirit is working within and changing lives. And he came to the conviction that if a revival was going to happen in his place, in his area, if it was going to happen anywhere, if it was going to happen in his church, that they needed to become sensitive to the fact that God's Spirit was working in their heart and life. And they needed to respond to it. So do you know what Edwards preached in 1734? You say, sinners in the hands of an angry God. No, no. Actually, he preached a message called a divine and supernatural light. And you know what he started to preach? He said, Christians have truth drilled into them by others, and they can talk a good game. Well, I don't think he worded it this way. But anyway, this is basically the idea. But, but he said, they're totally out of touch with supernatural reality. And i got to tell you something, that what, what he understood is so true, and it's true today. Christians, in many cases, can spout off verse after verse after verse, the, the ones that are easy right here to memorize. 
but in, in many ways, Christians are woefully inadequate in understanding that the Spirit of God is within and the Spirit of God is working. And that should concern you as a Christian. It should. When God started to work in revival during the, that, that period, Edwards expressed what he saw. He said in the preaching services... Here's what he said. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. When God's spirit really started to grab hold of lives and change people, he said, our, uh, and these are his words, our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's spirit. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Look, he came to the understanding that if we are Christians who just know a bunch of facts, we are not good Christians. We are to be Christians who are walking the Christian life, and that is what this verse is all about. Quench not the Spirit. It's one thing to know the Spirit's within. It's one thing to know that the Spirit is working, but some people have no idea that He is even working, and they have no uh, awareness of the fact and no sensitivity to the fact that the Spirit of God is working, and they haven't. In fact, I wrote down some questions that have challenged me this past week. Here's, here's what I wrote. Do you know by experience that God's Spirit is working in your life? And I'm not talking about some strange feeling. You, you, you know if you understand what we're teaching about divine healing. We're not talking about some of the bizarre things that you see uh, on fringes of Christianity. But I'm asking, have you experienced God's Spirit working in your life? Um, God's Spirit helping you see how you can be useful to God. God's Spirit convicting you of sin. God's Spirit comforting your heart when you're in deep sorrow. God's Spirit moving you to share the gospel with someone around you, as we've been challenged about recently. God's Spirit enabling you and empowering you to stand up for Jesus Christ, as we sang about and we heard about in Sunday school with the men. Are you aware that God's Spirit, not just, not just within, but that God's Spirit is indeed working in your heart and life? Here are some other questions I wrote. Do you long for the things of God? Because that's a sign that you know the Spirit of God is working. Do you really long for Him? Is it kind of like, eh, got church done, we're good, go on the rest of the week, our way? Um, is there conviction of sin when a subject is preached from the Bible? This, this is especially challenging. Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? I've heard people preach great Galatians 5 say, You need faith. You need love. You need joy. You need peace. And that's not what the passage is teaching. Galatians 5 is saying when you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit is going to bring forth. Fruit is something the Spirit brings forth. So if I don't have joy, if I don't have peace, if I'm not long-suffering, 
then there's something wrong with my relationship with the Spirit of God. And no, I'm not a charismatic. But I believe in the Spirit of God, and I believe the Spirit works, and my passage tells me so. Quench not the Spirit. God's Spirit was within. God's Spirit is working. But I haven't even addressed it, have I? In verse 19, he says, quench not the Spirit. God's Spirit working, at least as far as this passage is concerned, we're given a warning. I'm aware. I've spoken about our text, but we haven't dealt with the truth of it. And it's this. Don't put out the fire of the Spirit working in your heart and life. Now, if you don't know he's working, it's one of two things. Either you're not part of the family of God. and That sounds really cruel, but it's true, because if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of his. And if you don't know the Spirit is working, and if you never, if you don't fall under conviction ever, if you can read the Bible and, and you're never affected by it, if you can go on your Christian life knowing a bunch of facts, but it's not affecting how you live, and God's Spirit never works for you to be a witness, never challenges you about anything in your Christian life, then then let me tell you something. Maybe you don't have a Christian life. And that may sound cruel, but he in this passage is, is telling us that's exactly the fact that God's Spirit is working in your heart and life, and he wants to change you, but you have to become sensitive to it and allow it. And you're not to quench. If you had a fire in your home, what would you do? You'd probably try to put it out yourself because you're, you don't want to bother anyone, right? You're that way. Okay. But if you're not successful in doing that, you're going to call the fire department. The fire department's going to come. And what are they going to do? Well, they're going to hopefully find the fire hydrants that are within your, you know, close to your house. They're going to hook up these hoses. They're going to take water and pour it all over your house and ruin everything you have. And, and then you have to go through the great problem of insurance. Don't you love it? I'm reminding you all the rotten things that happen when you have a fire in your house. I actually used to work fire damage, and my boss used to say, if my house is burning, I'm going to let it burn until it burns almost to the ground, and then I'm calling the fire department because it's better to get rid of everything than to have to try to fix everything, and uh, it'll never come out right. Well, anyway, that was free for you, for those of you who wanted to know that. But the fact of the matter is they're going to come, they're going to pour water on it because water is going to help put the fire out, right? If you're on fire, what do they tell you to do? Come on, you know the line. Stop, drop, and roll, right? Well, why did you do that? Because you're going to hopefully put out the flames. You're going you're gonna to smother the flames by rolling on the ground, right? If you're out in the yard and the fire gets a little bit away from things, you might grab a, a couple of shovels of sand, if you have it, or dirt, and throw it on the flame, right? Because that would quench or put out or smother or get rid of the air that the fire needs and thus succeed in stopping the fire. Do you know this passage says Christians Christians put out the fire of God's Spirit, or they can, and they obviously do. And can I remind you that this church was not a bunch of backslidden people like the church at Corinth. These were Christians who were living for God, serving God, and faithfully doing the things God wanted them to do. And yet he told them, don't quench the Spirit. Because your life is dependent upon that fire burning and burning 
ever so intensely. So, how are you doing? You say, well, pastor, how do I know how I'm doing? Well, do you have love and joy and peace? Are, are, are you patient, long-suffering? Are you gentle? Are you good? Are you temperate, self-controlled? Bring forth. Are you a witness for Jesus Christ? But you shall receive power after that. The Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. Well, I believe that witnessing is uh, that's a, that your people's spiritual relationship is their own personal business. That's not what the Bible says. It's the work and ministry of the Spirit to help you with that. If the Spirit never works in your heart in regard to that, then He's been quenched. Because I'll tell you, the Spirit of God is telling you to be a witness. He is. That's not my idea. That's what God tells us. So if you're never convicted about that, the Spirit's been quenched. Does that make sense? Sometimes we, we just go over things. We read those verses. Again, that's like, quench not the Spirit. What can you say about that? Well, there's a lot. The question this morning is not, do we know what it says? The question is, have we been dousing the fire? By the way, a fire in the right place is a good thing. You see, the truth is you don't want to stop, drop, and roll if the fire is, is uh, in your soul that the Spirit of God is, is bringing forth. You don't want to throw dirt on it if it's a work that the Spirit of God is doing because it's a good thing. Fire in the right place provides light. Fire in the right place uh, um, provides uh, warmth. It can provide life, light, security in many different ways. Burning within a fire, or sorry, a fire burning is a good thing. And so the fire of the Spirit is always a good thing. But you can put it out. You say, how do we put it out? Well, there, there's a, a lot of ways, but I would just say, for starters, it's just not doing what he's working in your heart about. Just not doing it. Coming to a service, hearing preaching from the Word of God, which convicts maybe even what we've just learned about, and going your way and not doing anything about it. Quench not the Spirit. In verses 20, 21, and 22, God draws our attention now to another subject. By the way, closer related because the Spirit of God and the Word of God work together and in conjunction with one another. And anyone who wants to argue that's talking about the gifts of the Spirit or it's talking about the Spirit of God convicting us through the Word of God, I have no problem with that because these are verses that are tied together for us. And in this passage, God says this, despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. So there are a number of things he tells us about the work of the Scriptures. First, he shares with us our attitude toward the Word of God. Now, I, I find it interesting. He says, despise not prophesying. What does that mean? That means you're supposed to love preaching on the book of Revelation. 
No, no, it really, it really isn't. Although, actually, some kind of believe that it deals with prophecy and, and, and prophetic things, which, by the way, in that day, still would have been happening because the Bible wasn't complete. And since the Bible wasn't complete and they didn't have a Bible they could open to and say, this is what God wants us to do, this is how God wants us to live, because they didn't have the scriptures at that time, there were people that God worked in and through and they prophesied and they shared truth. There were times where they didn't have Paul in their congregation that could say, this is what God wants you to do. And God's spirit would come upon someone and they would prophesy. They would speak forth truth. And here's, if, if you want to understand it that way, it would be this. Don't despise that. It's important. Now, most who look at the phrase and who have studied it out, probably far more than I have, although I did take some time on it, Believe that when he's talking about prophesying here, he's talking about preaching. He's not talking about something in the future. He's not talking about some uh, utterance of the spirit that God has given, but he is indeed just talking about when someone brings forth the word of God because God uses the method of preaching to bring lost people to Jesus Christ and the method of preaching to help Christians grow in grace and in the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when he says, despise not prophesying, he says, you need to have a right attitude toward the Bible and toward Bible preaching. Yes, don't despise it. Now, when you say, if I asked the question this morning, how many of you despise preaching? You better not lift your hand. In fact, I know no one would unless they were just trying to irk me. <clears throat> and I know some who might do that. I, I don't know why I'm looking right here, Brother Deals, but uh, I figured there might be a hand. There's a couple hands that I might. Yeah, I see some other people too. And we're getting a couple of smiles here. Uh, <laughs> all right, so some of you may have done. In fact, probably most of you would put your hand up. I despise preaching, especially your preaching. All right, that, that may be true. But when he's talking about despising there, it can mean to, to hate something. But might I suggest that that was not the intent and that wasn't the understanding of that word in this context. And the reason I tell you that is because, as we've already seen and we've mentioned a number of times, the church at Thessalonica was living for God. They wouldn't despise the preaching of the word of God. They wouldn't despise it in the sense that they hate it. I just despise it. I can't stand going to church. I can't stand being with God's people in here to preach. No, that isn't at all what it means. Despise in this instance is dealing with um, making it of no importance. That's probably how we would describe it. In other words, it's not important to me. And do you realize that, that any time a Christian backslides, that's what happens? Any time a Christian goes away from God, strays from God, one of, the first, one of the first things that happens, besides the fact they're questioning the Spirit of God, one of the first things that happens is they no longer want to hear either hear the preaching of the Word or they stop reading their own Bible. They're not, I hate the Bible, despising it in that sense. But they don't see it as important any longer. Have you ever talked to someone who's not going to church anymore and they said something like this? Maybe they were faithfully telling this well, I don't think I need church. I can grow on my own in the Word. You know, there's always a good question that, all right, so what did you learn this past week? I, I really doubt anyone that is, does not see the importance of being in church is growing in their Christian life, as they ought be. In fact, I know they aren't, because Paul told Timothy to preach the Word, to be instant in season and out of season, and that is in the context of the local church, and that's what people need. 
But when people despise prophecy, the prophesying, it's when I get to the place where I just hold it, I, I don't value it highly. It's of little importance to me. Uh, how important is your Bible reading every day? Ooh, this this one. Don't answer this. Don't even give me a, a, a response in the face. I don't want to see it, all right? But how important is it for you to be at church? You, you know, when all this COVID-19 stuff, we, we, we talked about it way at the beginning, and it, I know it keeps coming up, and we're over that, I know. But, you know, one of the things that I said, and it's so true, is that um, church is an essential service. And it's not just the preaching of the word, but, but that's a big part of it. It's that you, you, you need God's people and God's word. It is an essential service. And when I, wait a minute, it's a deal. It's not important to me. Then there's something wrong. Despise not prophesying. Um, I'm just trying to think how to describe it. Let's say you got tickets for the Nashville Symphony, and the day of the performance arrives, and you go to the whatever they call it, Skirmhorn. I don't even know how to pronounce that place. You know, it's a really nice place. I've been to the symphony. Okay, you all know how to pronounce it, and so you're laughing because I'm saying it the wrong way. That's fine. You, you say, um, you know, Sam's Horn. All right. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Um, so you go, and waiting at the door, there's going to be this friendly person that has like a scanner or whatever saying, I need to see your ticket. So they say that to you, and you say, look, ticket to the concert. I got one, but I didn't think it was important to have it. Let me in. What do you think is going to happen? You need the ticket. To get in. This is a necessity. Right? You can't just walk up and say, I bought I really did. I, I didn't bring it because I didn't think it was important. It's not important to me, so why is it important to you? Well, look, you may ignore the importance, but that doesn't change the fact that you aren't going to get in to see the performance. You aren't going to get in to see the performance unless you can prove you have a ticket. You, you need that. It's important. And if your attitude is, I don't really care. Well, you may not care. But it matters. And sadly, as the case, in fact, it can be the case of believers who know and love God. You can grow to the place where you just don't think it's important anymore that you spend time in the Word. You don't think it's important anymore that you get under preaching the Word. You don't think it's important that you make time in your schedule to be in God's house with God's people and hear the Word of God so that you can help. You just don't see how important it really is. You're there. You need the three words of verse 20 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Despise not prophesying. Your attitude toward the word needs to be this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I need to hear from God today. Nothing's more. I need to be with God's people today and hear the word of God preached because nothing's more important than that. I need the word of God. That is the challenge of our passage here.
attitude towards your, the word. Your action with the word in verse 21. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. God has given us in the Bible all things that pertain to life and godliness. You say, Pastor, you make that statement all the time. Well, that's because it's a Bible quote. And it is. Because Peter wrote those words and he says that he's given us this wonderful book to have all things that pertain to life and godliness, to, to know the way we ought to live life, to know how we can please God, to know how to walk a life that is glorifying to God. It's all found in this book. And so what God tells us our action should be, our attitude is, I need this book. I'm not going to despise the prophesying of the word. The second thing is I need to prove all things. I need to test everything and hold fast to things that are good. And that word means excellent. So my action toward the word is, hey, what does God say about this? What does God think about this place? What does God think about this music? What does God think about this person to on the way to work? Oh, it doesn't matter. Well, then why did God say prove? Prove most things, the things that you don't love, just prove those things. The things that don't matter, you, know, you, know, you prove those things, and then the things that really matter to you just don't bother because God hasn't spoken about that. No, God says test. How many things? Test how many things? I, I, I know you're, you're to prove how many? Okay, everything in your life is to be tested according to the book that and to guide you a life in godliness. That's to be your action to the Word of God. Your attitude is, I need it. Well, why do I need it? So I can know what I'm supposed to do. Well, then what am I supposed to do? Prove all things and hold the fast to things that are not just okay, not just acceptable. Oh, I don't have any problem with that. But it's the things that are excellent, the things that are best, the things that are good. You say, why is that necessary? Can I share with you an Old Testament verse that really uh, that brought home the truth to me? Let, let me read it to you. In Deuteronomy 6, 17 and 18, God said, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he hath commanded thee. So in other words, he said, look, you've got a, you got a job to do. You've got to keep the word of God. Verse 18 says this, And thou shalt do that which is right and good. So that's kind of saying the same thing as, as here. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. You're to do the things that are right and good. Well, how do I know what's right and good? Follow the commandments of God. But do you know what he says in verse 18 right after that? L listen again to it. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord. As I was reading the, those verses, I know it's Old Testament law, but it actually is, is consistently saying pretty much the same thing verse 21 is telling us. But what he reveals in that passage is the reason why this is so important, and it's this. It's because you live life before God. Because, because God is in that car with you, and he hears the music you're listening to. Because God is observing what you're watching uh, on TV or what you're looking at on the Internet. Life is lived before God. So I need to prove things because he's there. He's observing. That's profound. 
And it's challenging. Because it's easy to live life just not even cognizant of the fact that God is watching. And so he tells me to prove all things. The action that I need with the word of God is, is this right? Is this wrong? Would God have me do this? Would God have me listen to this? Would God have me say this? You know, some guys will get with guys at work and, and listen to the dirty jokes and, and, and get involved in conversations that a Christian shouldn't get involved in. And sometimes just not even thinking, God is with me. You, you can't always shut off the filthy conversation of the world, but you don't have to put yourself amongst it and sit and listen to it and laugh with them. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Your action with the word, your appropriation of the word, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. evil. This is the other side of the corn. Cor corn, yes, the other side of the corn. Do you know there's other side of the corn? We ate corn last night. That must be what I, was, what I was thinking. All right, there's the other side of the corn. The other side of the coin. <laughs> wow, that was bad, wasn't it? Uh, Brother Rumstead said his body was in bad shape. My mind's in bad shape this morning. All right, so here's the other side of the coin. While the Christian is to test all things and hold fast and do the things that are good, the Christian is also to abstain from all appearance of evil. Anything that would appear to be in any way, shape, or form that which is evil. Do you know sometimes it's hard to know what's right and wrong? Oh, no, pastor, it's always black and white. No, it's not. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to discern what is best. At, do you ever have to make decisions and it's hard? You just don't really know. Maybe you can go two different ways and neither of them are sinful. So what's the best way to go? And what shouldn't I do? Sometimes you can look at an activity and it can kind of be like, well, you know, there's really nothing in the Bible that says this is bad. So is it okay? Uh, what should I do? And when you get to that place, you need God's wisdom to help you say, you know what, if there's anything questionable, if in doubt, don't. Have you ever heard that statement before? Uh, if you, you need to, if in doubt, don't. Just just don't do it. Someone explained it like this. A husband was looking through uh, shirts hanging in the, his closet. He was looking at the collars trying to find a clean one. That's not a good thing, by the way, if that's going on in your home. But anyway, he was doing that, trying to find a clean one. And his wife, observing what he was doing, said that if it's doubtful, it's dirty. And the one telling that story said, the same line of reasoning may be applied trying to decide if something is right or wrong. There are some activities that would be fine to do. There's nothing sinful in and of themselves. But it's something a Christian shouldn't do just because he has question about it. Do you know that Paul had to deal with that problem with the church at Rome when he said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. There are going to be times when I don't know if something's right or wrong. There's going to be, I, I have this doubt about it. If there's doubt, don't do it. That's what our passage tells us. Abstain from, stay away from, stop doing anything that appears in any way to be evil. Um, that, that could guide your musical choices. It could guide the places you go to. Uh, it could guide all areas of life. Just if it's questionable. Dress, if it's questionable, just don't wear it. 
If, if you got to ask, is this too revealing? Don't wear it. Is this too tight? Don't wear it. Is this too see-through? Don't wear it. If you got to ask, if in doubt, it's just better if you don't. You say, Pastor, those are your own ideas. No, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Things that are excellent do. And then if there's anything that appears at all to be questionable, don't do it. That's not my idea. That's God's. And it's in the passage you just looked at. Two things that are essential to your Christian life, the Spirit of God and the Scriptures. So, Christian, we could have gone through and finished the verses. We could have. We could have gotten done very easily. And you might think, Pastor, you just spent too much time. But I don't think we could ever spend too much time talking about the need for the Spirit of God having control of your life and the Scriptures holding the place of importance they need in your life. And this morning, I ask you, where are you at? Not what do you think about this passage, but where are you at? Is God's Spirit working and are you listening? Or is He quenched? Is God's Word changing your life? Or you don't see how important it is to be under the preaching of the Word? Or you don't see what's wrong with this? Where are you at in regard to the Scriptures and the Spirit of God? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.